All financial advice provided on this show is for entertainment and educational purposes only. The financial ideas and strategies discussed are only provided as a starting point for a conversation about money matters. With regard to your particular investments and financial strategies, consult your financial planner, CPA, or investment professional. All your financial decisions are yours and yours alone to make and subsequently are solely your responsibility. The information that is supplied through the context of the radio program and any repurposing of its content by the host or network is a combination and collection of solid financial investment understanding, opinion, and comments. This network, show, and its host are not liable for financial strategies, outcomes that you employ in any manner that result in any kind of loss. Shares of corporate sponsors may be the subject of buy or sell recommendations in Jay Taylor's newsletter in accordance with Jay's objective opinion. Welcome to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. This hour will help investors fix issues and achieve personal gain. Now, here's your host, Jay Taylor. Welcome to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. I'm your host, Jay Taylor. And as I like to remind you, each and every week, I'm also the author of a newsletter called Jay Taylor's Gold, Energy, and Tech Stocks. And my company, Taylor Hard Money Advisors, is also in partnership with Chen Lin, who publishes What is Chen Buying? What is Chen Selling? With regard to Chen's newsletter, you do need to put your name on a waiting list. Uh, go to miningstocks.com, miningstocks.com. Put your name on a waiting list, and uh, during the first two weeks of the new calendar quarter, Chen will be accepting new subscribers. You can subscribe to my newsletter at any time at miningstocks.com. I want to thank each of you for listening to this show, making it one of the more popular shows in the Voice America Business Channel. And I uh, also want to encourage you to keep your questions answers, uh, well, your questions, uh, yeah, answers as well. Uh, any ideas that you have, any, uh, any um, criticisms, any praises, whatever your thoughts are, send them along to questions for Taylor at gmail.com. Questions, the number four, Taylor at gmail.com. Also encourage you to follow me on Twitter at jtaylormedia. That's my handle, jtaylormedia. I want to thank our sponsors for making this show economically viable. Our sponsors for today's show are Avino Silver and Gold Mines, Novo Resources, RN Resources, Kalinex Resources, and Balmoral Resources. And we will be talking to the CEO of Balmoral next week uh, and uh, all the other CEOs. I think Quentin Henning of Novo is coming on the following week. Uh, some very incredibly exciting things going on. I'm very proud of all the sponsors that I have at this point in time. We are facing incredibly tumultuous markets, and I fear incredibly tumultuous times. And to be uh, sure, government keeps you and me under wraps. A prestigious mainstream newspaper, The Financial Times, is suggesting that all physical money should be done away with, much as the previous money, gold, was done away with. In other words, let's get rid of that more recent barbaric relic, namely cash. And the idea here is to go to simply to an electronic money and get away from the idea that people can actually spend their money without government knowing what they're doing. God forbid that that should happen. Well, there's no doubt in my mind that today when gold rose dramatically this morning as the equity markets were crumbling, uh, that there was a plunge protection team going to work again as soon as the New York markets open. Uh, that is, of course, to make sure that people realize that people don't get the wrong idea. We don't want people to think that somehow the dollar isn't as good as gold or the dollar isn't better than gold. We've all been trained to believe that the dollar is superior to gold and gold is a barbaric relic. Now they want to take away cash and make that a barbaric relic as well. What do you think people would do if they suddenly realized, hey, you know, I can get rich by exchanging my dollars for gold? 
And so the price of gold must be managed. I have no doubt about it. It must be contained. We must keep the animal spirits alive and in tune with spending uh, the dollars that are created out of nothing by our government. Gold can be allowed to rise little by little, but only so long that it is not believed to be better than the dollar. That is first and foremost. We must propagandize the notion uh, in the minds of the hearts, minds and hearts of people that gold uh, is a barbaric relic and that dollars created out of nothing is superior. If and when the day comes that people do no longer believe in the dollar, the floodlights will be shined on the fraudulent monetary system that is now in place and that is allowing the rich to continue to gain wealth and political power at the expense of the common folks. But when the day comes that people actually realize that the empire is naked, gold will, I believe, be, become a very rapid moonshot. So at all costs, the establishment must continue to deceive the American people about the value of the dollar and gold. However, it is interesting to note that at a time when the stock market is clearly entering a bear market, gold is increasing rather dramatically relative to stocks. For example, the Dow-to-gold ratio fell further this morning to about 14.25, down from 14.58 at the close yesterday. That's substantially below its 200-day moving average of 15.01. But in fact, gold was slammed hard in the paper markets, as I noticed uh, this morning. And over time, uh, over the last number of years, uh, of course, since 2011, actually exactly at the time that S&P downgraded U.S. Treasuries, the disconnect started between gold and QE and commodities in QE. And I'm not so sure that that uh, was an accident. But in any event, since then, we've started to see, we have seen gold take uh, quite a hit and silver and all the commodities as well. By suppressing the price of gold, faith has been maintained in the dollar, uh, or let's say that the dollar, uh, the, do- the faith was not lost in the dollar, that it would have been if gold had started to rise exponentially. Uh, and of course, U.S. global hegemony uh, and the U.S. economy and the stock market, all of that has continued to rise very dramatically and has caused all the mainstream folks to talk about how uh, we are much better off than everybody else in the world. But at last, there does come a time when Mother Nature prevails, and I think we are seeing that right now in the equity markets with today's decline. As I look at the screen right now, the Dow is down 424 points. Uh, that's on top of yesterday's very weak uh, performance, and of course, last week as well, uh, following the announcement from China of the devaluations. Well, I have titled today's show, Buy the Dips or Sell the Rips. Uh, This morning at breakfast, I was listening to the highly acclaimed technical analyst, Louise Yamada, who was on Bloomberg Radio with Tom Keene. And thanks to Laura Stein, it's a friend of Mrs. Taylor's and mine, I have had the privilege to meet Louise Yamada on several occasions. She is one of the nicest, sincerest, and I think humblest people that I've ever met. I do not believe there is a dishonest bone in her body. So I was not surprised this morning at the very candid answer Louise gave Thomas Keene when Thomas asked her, Do you mean to tell me the bull market is over? Without hesitation, Louise answered, I mean to tell you that the bull market of the last seven years is over, yes. Well, one of the many remarks that Louise made this morning uh, was the following. She said that during a bull market, markets will remain in oversold conditions very briefly. But in bear markets, markets can remain in oversold conditions for a very long period of time. And this time, she says, we've had an oversold condition in the market for three months. 
uh, as markets and internals also, she mentioned, the market internals have been getting weaker with more and more stocks falling below their 200-day moving average. And in fact, I think she said something like 60% of them were falling below the 200-day moving average. Um, so I think we, we need to realize that, in fact, we're coming into a very, very serious point in time in the markets. Uh, and, of course, I've always been more of a fundamental analyst, but I've realized the, the value of technical analysts. So I uh, have had Michael Oliver on this show on a regular basis. I've gained a great deal of confidence in Michael Oliver, uh, and I would encourage you to go to, uh, to um, OliverMSA.com, OliverMSA.com, and, and follow up on Michael's wonderful work. Uh, I've gained a great deal of confidence in his work, and he remains very constructive, I should say, on gold and gold shares, and he is very solidly in the bear camp for equities. In fact, on August 29th, he very strongly suggested that we will see 1685 on the S&P before the end of 2015. That's 1685, and as I look at the screen right now, we're looking at a 1918 figure for, uh, for the S&P 500. Regarding gold, Michael also said on August 29th the following, In contrast to its wild and erratic children, silver and gold miners, gold continues to progress in a way that I still regard as basing action accompanied by layered upside breakouts. I argue that a 50% position long gold is justified right now and suggesting adding another 25% in a monthly close in September that is above 1140 uh, Or... Uh, any trade next month that reaches 1,150. And I also suspect that if a third layer breakout occurs, that the final one in the 1,220 to 1,230 zone will occur much more easily. And at that point, the tone and directional speed of gold will change dramatically, end of quote. But Michael uh, follows many uh, markets besides that. And I would, again, suggest you go to Oliver, it's OliverMSA.com and uh, follow up on Michael's uh, uh, remarks. I do hope to have him on uh, on my show, if not on my show, at least at J. Taylor Media next week. Although Michael is not with us today, uh, I am very privileged to have Dr. Robert McHugh with me. Uh, he'll be with me just after we uh, finish the first commercial break here in a couple of minutes. The top, he says, in his missive that he sent out to his subscribers this morning, the top is in for the rally from 2009 and for the rally from 1987 and from the 1700s, a bear market is starting, end of quotes. In other words, Dr. McHugh believes that we are facing a bear market over the next five to seven years that is far greater than anything most of us can even fathom, can, can begin to imagine. A bear market that will occur and will correct excesses dating back as far as 100 years, 200 years? I don't know. Well, to be sure, that sounds a bit extreme, even to yours truly. Uh, but Robert will be with us in just a couple of minutes, as I say, uh, to, uh, to, to explain his views on that. And finally, at about half past the hour, I will be talking to our main guest today, and that's Bill Lagner, who, along with his partner, Kevin Duffy, posted triple-digit gains during the 2008-2009 bear market. I don't know of anyone who did better than uh, Mr. Lagner and Duffy during the financial crisis of 2000, 2008, 2009, we want to ask him what his reaction to some of Dr. McHugh's more extreme views are, and also uh, how the Bering Fund is positioning themselves right now uh, for what looks more and more certainly uh, a bear market. And we do have to go to commercial break now, but when we come back, uh, I do expect to have Dr. Robert McHugh with me, so don't go away. We'll be right back. 
Novo Resources Corporation, trading symbols NSRPF on the OTCQX and NVO on the Canadian Securities Exchange, is an advanced junior mining exploration company whose highly prospective assets are located in the Hammersley Basin of Western Australia. Novo's flagship asset, its Beaton's Creek Project, has an NI43101 compliant resource of 420,000 ounces at a grade of 1.5 grams per tonne. With $10 million in cash and strong shareholder support from Newmont Mining, Novo looks to complete a feasibility study in the first quarter of 2015. Avino Silver and Gold Mines is a diversified, low-cost producer with operations in Mexico and Canada. Avino is growth-oriented and recently completed a major expansion at its Mexican operation and is on pace to double output in 2015. Avino recently partnered with Samsung CNT and is now an official metal supplier to one of the world's largest manufacturers of consumer electronics and builder of some of the most prolific engineering projects worldwide. Avino's shares are listed on the NYSE market and the TSX Venture Exchange under the symbol ASM. If you want a silver lining in your portfolio, think of Eno. Oren Resources is a Canadian-based gold exploration company focused on the company's flagship Committee Bay project located in northern Canada, one of the best mining jurisdictions in the world. The company's current resource outlined by drilling thus far stands at 1.1 million ounces of gold at over 8 grams per tonne. Oren is operated by the same team that founded Asanko Gold, which is constructing a major gold mine in West Africa, and Caden Resources, which was recently purchased in November for over $200 million. From the boardroom to you, Voice America Business Network. Listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. If you have a question or comment about today's show, Jay would love to hear from you at 1 866 472 5790. That's 1 866 472 5790. You can also send an email to questionsfortaylor at gmail.com. That's questions, the number 4, Taylor at gmail.com. Now, back to our program. Welcome back to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. I'm your host, Jay Taylor, and I'm really pleased and privileged to have Dr. Robert McHugh with us today. He's in, uh, normally we would have Michael Oliver. Michael is traveling. Uh, but Dr. McHugh uh, is one of two technical analysts that I pay so much attention to. Uh, he is the author of The Coming Economic Ice Age, and I would really strongly suggest that folks go out there uh, and purchase this book. It is uh, out there now for a couple of years, but it really... I think is uh, prophesying what is happening and, and uh, I think what we're seeing unfolding right today and over the last couple of weeks is, is definitely in line with what uh, Dr. McHugh has been uh, forecasting. Thank you so much for joining me again, Robert. My pleasure, Jay. Really good to have you with me and uh, I guess we want to tell people to go to Technical uh, Indicator. Uh, help me out with your website now. I'm sorry I didn't have that in front of me. Just tech- no problem. Technicalindicatorindex.com technicalindicatorindex.com. I get emails and I go there every day and I don't pay attention to what the website address is, but I want to thank you again for being with us. You know, I was listening uh, this morning, uh, Louise Yamada, who I'm I'm sure is a name that's familiar to you. uh, She was on Tom Keene this morning on Bloomberg and uh, and Tom Keene says, you mean to tell me that that the bull market is over? And she said, I mean to tell you that the top is in 
uh, that, the, that the bear market of the last seven years is, uh, is over, uh, the bull market of the last seven years is over. And, of course, that wasn't something that Tom Keene really wanted to hear. But, again, you know, uh, this morning as I, as I look at your work, you're talking about the top is in not only for the, this bull market that uh, Luigi Amato is referring to, but a longer one, the 1987 one. And then you go back to the 1700s, which is, you know, it, it just is something that's unfathomable for most people. Uh, can you explain, I'm, I'm assuming then, of course, that you agree with Ms. Yamada that, that, the bear, that the bull market is over uh, and that we're heading into a bear market. But can you sort of explain to people why you think this is a bigger, a bigger deal than what Louise Yamada implied with her, in her remarks to Tom Keene this morning? Sure, Jay. Um, there's two, two, two technical sciences I've uh, used to come to that determination uh, one would be the Elliott wave analysis, and if you look at the uh, wave counts, the wave mapping from uh, going back to the beginning of 1900s, uh, the uh, the um, Great Depression uh, that happened in the 30s uh, was a bear market of super cycle degree. It was huge, but then the wave count from that point to the present has a completed uh, five wave uh, rise, which, which finishes off. Uh, cycles, and that completed right this this year uh, in the spring, and that is one degree higher than what the Great Depression of the 30s was. That has to be a super cycle degree, which goes all the way back to the 1700s, where they uh, tracked uh, market success and, and failures uh, from England, and also uh, uh, you know going back to the tulips, uh, Holland tulips, and that kind of thing. Tulipania. So. Mm-hmm. Um, so we can be sure of that from that perspective. And then the other uh, technical analysis science that tells me the same thing is this grand, is this uh, jaws of death pattern. It's a pattern. Uh, patterns uh, show up in, in stock prices uh, that give us pictures, and these pictures have meaning. They're communicating to us. And we have one of the largest uh, broadening tops, uh, what I call uh, megaphone top or jaws of death tops, that I've ever seen that may have ever existed uh, in modern times. Uh, certainly, uh, it's huge. And it goes from 1987 is when it started all the way up to now, and it's finished. It finished also in the spring. And uh, the clients off of these patterns are dramatic and, and, and extensive. And this pattern is calling for a downside target eventually of, uh, you know, below 1,000 in the Dow Industrials. Yeah. So uh, we have two different sciences telling us the same thing. Something very, very serious is coming, starting right now, and will lead to uh, major political changes. I think it will lead to some wars and a change in the entire economic uh, system that we're familiar with. Well, that is, uh, that is, of course, something that you and I have talked about over the years, and it's something that my listeners, some of my listeners here are very familiar with, but I'm, I dare say that to most to most people, that is uh, just so far out of out of the question that most people aren't going to even consider it. But, but I think you've you've clearly done your work, uh, your homework, and you have, uh, in good conscience, have been telling your your subscribers this for a number of years, uh, for reasons that I think are very well documented. And again, the coming economic ice age. If folks are really interested in understanding this stuff, what what is going on and what Robert believes is going on, I think you'd do well to to pick up a copy of this wonderful book, the economic 
the coming economic ice age, uh, Dr. Robert McHugh. Well, as we look at the markets now, I see we're down 441 points, 443 points as we're talking here now. Last night, uh, this morning, you, you frequently put out, almost uh, almost every day you put something out. And a lot of times I see it comes into my inbox at around 12.30, 1 o'clock in, uh, Eastern time here. Uh, regarding the bull market that is uh, the bear market, I should say that it's obviously just beginning. Uh, you said there continues to be two legitimate wave mapping scenarios for stocks right now. One is a the first wave count, um, you, you talk about stocks starting uh, starting down as of yesterday, and I guess a very serious decline that might be underway today, at, at seemingly with this 400-point down day. But then you say uh, there's a second wave mapping that, ha- that gives a bit more upside, and I guess you see the stocks, uh, possibly the S&P rising up to 2050-ish, somewhere in that range, and the Dow up to 17,250. Uh, so as I look at the Dow now, we're at 16,098. The S&P's at 1919. Um, talk to us a little bit. Given the fact that we're seeing today's activities, today's market weakness, which is just almost extreme with 430 points down now, uh, do you, does this movement today change your thinking in any, any, uh, in any way? Do you think one of the two mappings are more likely, or do you still see it as a toss-up? It's still a toss-up. Um, you know, we just had a, uh, a, a, a over 2,000-point decline in the industrials over the last several months, and most of it happened in the last month. And so uh, markets correct. They go down in stair-step fashion, down, up, down, up. But the uh, size of the corrections and the size of the moves is relative to uh, the, the initial major move. So uh, corrections, which I call, you know, rallies in a down market, are going to be large, and then uh, corrections are usually from an A up, C down, C up path. Uh, we hit a bottom uh, in uh, August 24th, and since then that rally that was record-breaking for two or three days was just either all of a subwave correction for uh, or, or, or part of a subwave correction I think that goes to those higher levels you mentioned. And... Uh, what, I, what we're here seeing today is either the middle wave of that correction where it'll go higher over the next few days, next week or so, and then I think there'd be an enormous plunge starting in the middle of September, or, um, or it could be uh, that, the, uh, that the, the initial decline over the last month is not finished. The rally last few days was just a small correction, believe it mm-hmm. or not. And we are now starting the fifth and final wave of that first enormous decline, oh. first wave down, which could go, in that case, to new lows below the August 24th lows over the next couple of days. Either way, there's going to be a massive decline, I think, starting in the middle of September, uh, which would be a wave three down. Wave threes are generally your most dramatic. And this thing is just getting started. This is going to be a series of, of downs and ups and downs and ups with lower highs each time and lower lows and lots of crashes. And, um, you know, I think that uh, regardless of which small short-term path uh, the, the moves take over the next week, I think uh, that, that both, either case, the correction will be complete uh, no later than a week or so from now, and then it goes down very hard, very, very hard. Well, it's uh, in any event, I, I should mention to our listeners that you also provide a, a premium service for serious traders, and it's more costly, of course, 
uh, but you do provide some trading advice for people as well. And, uh, you know, I'm just thinking here in terms of how do you play this thing. I can tell you that uh, I personally can't handle the leveraged shorts or the leveraged uh, uh, ETFs, for example. So I, I use uh, some single shorts like SH, which is just a one-to-one, uh, or PSQ on the uh, NASDAQ. Uh, but uh, there's really, I mean, unless you're really, unless you're really watching the market almost moment by moment, some of those leveraged shorts can be very dangerous, right? Oh yeah, I mean, uh, I have a conservative portfolio model, and you know, eighty percent of it is cash. Uh-huh. Uh, in times wow. like this, okay. cash, cash is a good place to be, and I, I make play with, in the you know, a speculative portion of the my total portfolio, maybe ten percent, where we'll take you know a shot at some. Put options or some uh, leveraged uh, ETFs uh, that, are, that are short, that, that are inverse the market, and fool around a little bit with that. And even that's very complicated, and uh, we, we, we share what we do uh, at our website, and it's up to individuals to consult with their financial advisor, whether they want to get into that game or whether they just want to stay with cash and wait to storm out until the next um, bounce arrives. But uh, like I said, I don't think that's going to be... Um, Something that's going to be uh, there's not going to be a lot of great bounces that'll last uh, yeah. very long. You will get bounces, but they won't last a long time. Well, in fact, you're looking at something. If I if I'm reading you correctly, something that might last five to seven years here. But you would have some pretty good uh, bounces, I would imagine. Some at least uh, that would might get people to think that oh, maybe it's time to get back in. We've seen the lows now, yeah. so it could trick people back in. I suppose, right? Yeah, they're traps uh, in a bear market. Bear markets are not. The problem with a bear is he's not out there to help people who are pessimistic about the market who want to make money on the downside. Bear market wants to kill everybody. Uh, he wants yeah. everybody flushed out of the market, and those spike rallies that you just talked about will kill the shorts. It'll uh, people that are the the ones playing the downside will get murdered when those bounces come, and they come oftentimes out of the blue. We're very careful in our analysis to try to identify when they're likely to come. But uh, the, the problem with bear markets is, you know, it's a wealth preservation scenario. I mean, yes, some, some top traders can get some wealth out of uh, trading it, but uh, it's, a, it's a hunker down scenario. Yeah, well, the hunker down with 80% cash, I can understand then why you might take 20% uh, and, uh, you know, some higher, higher risk, higher return uh, shots. But in any event, we just have a couple of minutes left here, Robert. Just uh, gold. You have been talking about gold uh, as bullish as anybody I've seen uh, talk, uh, this year at this point in time. Talking about 1425-ish, I think, as a possibility yet over the next four months. Are you still holding, holding fast to that prediction? I think so, yeah. I, I mean, the charts allow for it. Uh, and fundamentally, what could happen? I think gold is a premium safe haven. I think we're about to see a lot of uh, danger in the in the political arena, the geopolitical r- environment, uh, a lot of uncertainty, and at some point, gold's going to become a safe haven. Uh, wars could break out. Uh, tensions, I mean, international tensions are going to be through the roof. China's falling apart, and yeah. they were the uh, one of the largest economies in the world, and they're, they're, and it's going to have an impact on all our international uh, large corporations housed in the United States. I mean, this thing's falling apart. This world economy is unraveling fast. Yes, And yes. Uh, that creates political issues, possibilities of war, and gold is going to be sought out at some point here. Uh, I mean, if, it's not, if I'm wrong, it's not in the next four months. It'll be in the next year. 
uh, as the geopolitical uh, fallout of these prices, this, this decline, uh, this uh, economic decline uh, becomes evident. You know, Robert, as I think about it, we're looking at gold in terms of the Dow, gold in terms of uh, copper and energy and so forth, and it has really been rising very dramatically against the equity market over the last few weeks or so. So in real terms, I like to look at gold, you know, what is the real, you know, because it's hard to measure gold. How do you measure gold against a currency that has no basis of of merit or or foundation? And what is a dollar? You know, as Ian McAvee liked to say, uh, a barrel of oil is a barrel of oil, an ounce of gold is an ounce of gold. What is a dollar? And so if the dollar and if the global economy is, is going to tank and implode, unfortunately, I believe it is, and, and you, you share those views, well then, you know, who's to say what the price of gold may be in terms of a dollar? Because what is a dollar? Yeah, I mean, the dollar is, is, uh, is, is, is very difficult to identify its value. Uh, I mean, the Fed just threw $5 trillion in QE programs to of printed dollars, they saturated the economy with liquidity, and then, uh, you know, we've just wiped out uh, over a third of that uh, of that uh, QE program uh, in thin air from the stock market crash. So, yeah. I don't know, uh, you know, they just keep printing and then devaluing and raising the cost of living on us, and at the end of the day, where are we? Uh, worse off, for sure. Yeah, we're worse off. Uh, the very tiny, a uh, very tiny minority of a one tenth of one percent or one hundredth of one percent that are getting rich is, uh, is imaginable. But uh, the masses, of course, are are not uh, are not doing well at all, to say the least. Well, we do have to go now. Uh, I see our time is up. I want to thank you very much. You know, you are very brave in taking time away from the markets today. We're down four hundred and sixty points right now, Robert. Uh, to have you break away from your computers today. Thank you very much for doing that. Uh, I look forward to talking to you again sometime in the near future. Thank you so much for being with us. Thanks, Jay. My pleasure. Well, folks, uh, don't go away. We're going to be right back after the commercial break. We've got Bill Lagner with us. He and his uh, and his partner there, Kevin Duffy, uh, managed triple-digit gains during the last bear market, 2008-2009. Uh, so we want to hear what Bill Lagner has to say about how uh, he and uh, his bearing fund are managing their portfolio in these tumultuous times. So don't go away. We'll be right back with Bill Lagner. Some things never go out of style. In the gold business for over 100 years, high-grade Canadian gold discoveries have been in vogue amongst investors. Balmoral Resources has continued to deliver high-grade results from a series of new discoveries in Quebec. If you're looking to upgrade your portfolio in the fall with some golden highlights, learn more about Balmoral at balmoralresources.com. Balmoral trades on the OTCQX under the symbol BALMF and on the Toronto Stock Exchange under the symbol BAR. Calinex is a junior with major near-term catalysts. This tightly held company is advancing its projects containing copper, zinc, gold, and silver in Manitoba, Canada. Calinex's projects are within 10 miles to Hud Bay's mine that has less than five years of ore. Calinex has high-grade deposits and new targets with exciting discovery potential, with drill results anticipated shortly. Now is the time to learn more about Calinex by visiting calinex.ca. That's C-A-L-L-I-N-E-X dot C-A. Calinex is publicly traded under the symbols CNX in Canada and CLLXF in the U.S. 
Orin Resources is a Canadian-based gold exploration company focused on the company's flagship Committee Bay project located in northern Canada, one of the best mining jurisdictions in the world. The company's current resource outlined by drilling thus far stands at 1.1 million ounces of gold at over 8 grams per ton. Orin is operated by the same team that founded Asanko Gold, which is constructing a major gold mine in West Africa, and Caden Resources, which was recently purchased in November for over $200 million. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. Listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. If you have a question or comment about today's show, Jay would love to hear from you at 1 866 472 5790. That's 1 866 472 5790. You can also send an email to questionsfortaylor at gmail.com. That's questions, the number 4, Taylor at gmail.com. Now, back to our program. Welcome back to Turning Hard Times to Good Times. I'm your host, Jay Taylor. I'm really pleased to have with me Bill Lagner. He's been with us before, uh, so I won't go into his bio right now. It is posted at the Voice America Business uh, channel uh, on my page at the Voice America Business channel. So if you'd like to know more about him, go there. I'll just tell you now that uh, he, and as I mentioned uh, coming into this segment, he and his partner, Kevin Duffy, uh, have been running the Bearing Fund, and they did extremely well. During the 2008-2009 crash, I don't know of anybody that did better than they did with triple-digit gains while everybody else uh, was losing, literally losing their shirts and homes and houses and spouses. Uh, So it was a tough time. But, uh, you know, Kevin and Bill take a view of the markets uh, from a... Uh, from a, from a free market to Austrian school point of view, and those of us who look at the world through those lenses do see things differently. We did predict, uh, though our timing was off, did predict that the time was coming for the crash of 0809, uh, and earlier than that, other problems. Uh, and so it's just a matter of time. And and you know I've seen it coming. Other people on this show have seen it coming. But uh, you know seeing it coming and then being able to profit from it, being able to make money as a result of, of your ability to predict and to see market changes is, is a whole other story. So uh, that's why I'm really glad to have Bill with me today because he, he and his partner have been very successful in that regard in the past. Thanks for joining me again, Bill. Jay, thanks for, thanks for having me on your program. It's always good to have you with me, and you are, uh, I guess, in California somewhere, probably talking to some other investors, and thank you so much for breaking away on this tumultuous day with the Dow down now 471 points. Uh, Luis Yamada, as I, as I mentioned earlier in the show, told Tom Keene on Bloomberg this morning in no uncertain terms uh, that the bull market for stocks of the past seven years is over. I take it that you're in agreement with that. Well, I, I would have to agree with that. I, I would agree with uh, Louise on that statement, yes. So, you know, as a technical analyst, Louise looks at market internals. Uh, you know, she noted that there was an increasing number of stocks that have fallen below their 200-day moving average and that uh, even after a recent rise in the market, still, uh, think, I think she said something like 60% of them were, remain below the 200-day moving average. In other words, she was seeing weakness in the markets that were not obvious from the headline market averages. Well, you look at economic fundamentals, and, and you recently wrote an article, The Dog That Didn't Bark. 
Yeah, and that told you that things were not nearly as good as they appeared to be on the surface. So what, what was the dog that didn't bark that sort of tipped you off to the weakness in the financial markets that you saw? Well, full clarification, that was actually written by Russell Napier. Um, oh, okay. And, and uh, who's written several books, Anatomy of a Bear Market, uh, and his, his key points of kind of delving into deflation, inflation is... Um, you know, looking, for example, at rising credit spreads, and that's obviously one sign that you're entering a bear market. And let's face it, we've, we saw that initially with the, the crash and some of the commodity uh, base metal prices several years ago, credit spreads and in that industry started to blow out. And then I live in Texas, and of course, Texas in the last uh, nine to 10 months has seen oil prices plunge. And credit spreads in the oil sphere have uh, blown out. And now what's happening is you're starting to get, you know, second and third tier companies in a variety of industries. You know, you pick the industry and and credit spreads are blowing out. Uh, And then, of course, the other thing that I think kind of tipped us off, and and look, full disclosure, I mean, we we saw the the, uh, peak in profits 11 quarters ago, operating profits, not financial, but they kept the game going. And I say they, meaning the really the professional speculators. And so the ability to, you know, post collateral leverage various asset classes, engage high frequency trading algorithmic programs, etc. No one really wanted to leave the uh, the casino, so to speak. They just kept going from table to table. And uh, the last year or so, that everyone had piled into the craps table, which were a lot of these momentum related names that kept going up. Netflix. Uh, you know, Google, Apple, et cetera. So I think, um, I think we're finally seeing the, um, the professional speculators uh, get, uh, get hit and actually being removed from the market. It was interesting just several weeks ago where KKR was shutting down a commodity private equity fund, and I think the losses there were quite substantial. So really what we're, what we're entering into, Jay, is kind of the... Um, the phase where the professional speculators are unable to post phantom collateral and keep playing their playing their games, and that you know she's calling it the beginning of a bear market. You know we would we would agree with that, but we would really clarify that this is more of the professional speculators that have been being engaging in folly to a large degree the last two or three years. Well, let's explore why aren't they able to continue doing it. Uh, certainly, the policymakers can continue to, to provide the casino chips for these guys if they want to, right? Yeah, that's a great point. So, so the cost of borrowing money uh, for the speculator has really not increased very much. There's still quite a bit of availability, and, and of course, they've been tapping those quote-unquote credit facilities and, and you know, engaging all kinds of speculation. And so, um, and that's worked up until a few years ago, and then sector by sector, we've started to see uh, carnage. And I think what happens is at the end of the day, um, these various strategies that they engage in don't really work, and even though the cost of accessing credit is low, they've, they've essentially exhausted all of their collateral. They've had margin calls. They've... they've uh, They've been forced to, uh, to meet redemptions by, by investors. And when I say professional speculators, let's just specify, these are large hedge funds, sovereign wealth funds, private equity funds of some shape, size, color, et cetera, and, um, and then, of course, some of the, uh, the large investment firms. So uh, 
broker dealers and banks, et cetera. So they, they you know, directly and indirectly engage in this. So those are the people who are, you know, right now, I think, in, in the early stages of being removed from the equation. The different players than the 2008-2009 time frame? Well, I, there was some of the same then. Uh, the retail investor was still pretty uh, prevalent back then. Today, the retail investor, through his advisor and his own doings, is, has engaged in the ETF game, and we've seen some cracks in that market where, you know, a week ago, um, a lot of these ETFs, with the market opened down 1,000 points, some of these ETFs were trading at huge discounts to the underlying value of, this, of the stock. So you're actually getting a a very uh, close view, an up-close personal view of how the ETF industry is actually broken. So just another sign of a very unhealthy market and or a market where speculators have run wild for the last couple of years. Bill, would these be more of the leveraged ETFs, or are you talking about the straight ETFs that might just... Well, uh, we, we actually witnessed it in, in both areas. I don't, I don't have a list in front of me, but there there mm-hmm. was several people have written about this. So... Um, so that's you know that's another sign that the um, that the fabric of the market is fraying, and um, and that clearly that there is a lot of people uh, you know the uh, the the Buffett term right they're swimming without a bathing suit and the tide is slowly beginning to go out. Right. You mentioned uh, credit spreads. I guess what you're talking about uh, the, the dog that didn't bark. Uh, the credit spreads being. I suppose, junk to treasuries? Would that be one? Um, yeah, that would be one. Um, then you could look at se- uh, several pieces of the structured finance area, either um, auto, uh, asset-backed securities, uh, commercial mortgage-backed securities. Um, you know, let's face it. I mean, it, it, is, it is leverage. When you and I met years ago, and I think I'd given a talk at the CMRE, and the title of the talk was Unwinding Planet Leverage. This is really... Unwinding Planet Leverage 2.0. The sequel was again the the governments trying to stimulate their own economies through, you know, the same methodology: lower interest rates, print money, socialize credit, uh, and try and get people to borrow and and take on risk and and uh, get the nominal GDP tax equation to move in their in their favor. And it never really happened. And now what's happening is it's going in reverse. China. China this time, I think, you know, we've, we've been on your show a number of times talking about the hard landing in China. I think it's absolutely uh, evident now that they're in a hard landing. They've intervened a number of times. They've tried to prop up their own market, and it's failing miserably. Uh, all of these interventions uh, ultimately do much more damage versus just sitting back and letting the markets kind of sort things out and reprice, you know, converting debt to equity and essentially building a new foundation. Well, hard landing in China. I'm now looking at an equity market that's down 542 points in, in the United States. And, of course, uh, the Chinese stock market started off, uh, it was sort of an exponential rise about this time last year, I guess. And Michael Oliver uh, called the bull market uh, and, and got people into that market uh, well before anybody else and, and uh, did well in getting people out as well, I should I should mention. But uh, now, it, uh, you know, most people say, well, why should this be bothering our markets? Why should what goes on in China have anything to do with our markets? After all, I think we only have a very small percentage of our exports to China. I just heard this argument a little while ago on Bloomberg before the radio show started here. Uh, what's, your, what's your response to that? Why should China have such an impact on, uh, on the United States? 
Well, let's let's go. Let's roll the tape all the way back to 1994. So in '94, uh, you had non-performing loans in the Chinese banking system of roughly 40 percent. They devalued the currency 50 percent overnight, and they had this massive kind of export-led boom in China through the '90s. And then, of course, putting uh, fuel on the fire was the U.S. mortgage equity withdrawal uh, manifestation beginning when after the tech bubble burst in 0102. And so you had this incredible layer after layer of excess consumption, kind of uh, unsustainable consumption. And China was the, there were a number of beneficiaries. China was the primary beneficiary. And, and that led to these huge trade surpluses and the government controlling everything, building railways and infrastructure and buildings and you know, private real estate construction, et cetera, to where you know, the fixed investment to GDP bubble was unlike anything the world's seen the last hundred years. Well, mm-hmm. that's obviously, that was bursting along with most asset markets in 08 and 09, and then the governments collectively got together with the central banks and tried to reflate back out, and you created, you know, roughly $18 trillion of new debt in China. A lot of it was just malinvestment. A lot of it's not even being serviced, either, either private, local government, government uh, obligations, and so all of that um, excess kind of credit that flowed through the system sent all these wildly false signals through the global economy and, you know, different businesses, different geograph- ge- geographies built business models around these signals. And now they're realizing that, that there is no sequel there and they're going into this hard landing. And so China's a big player, was a big player for base metals, uh, we always thought we would get the contraction deflationary way first, and then it would be met with incredible response mechanisms by the powers that be, and they would destroy the integrity of, of paper money and maybe even completely destroy the paper money system. And so we've had that. First it was base metals, and then it got into agriculture-related things. But you could see that nominal GDP in China, real GDP in China, if you ferret through the data, that year over year it's actually contracting. And so the world and a fiat system is not designed to go in reverse. And so now bills are coming due. All bills are coming due. And China is, you know, they're on the main stage today, but they were one of the biggest quote-unquote economic actors over the last 15, 20 years. Indeed, and we're seeing those countries that were supplying uh, the raw materials from which these uh, major cities and manufacturing facilities and the like, and, and of course the raw materials that were used in the manuf- by manufacturers uh, no longer are being demanded, and so all of the e- economies that are exporting uh, copper and energy and uh, whatever you have, the sort of raw materials are really uh, are really sucking wind, aren't they? The, the Canada, Brazil, so forth, uh, Australia, New Zealand, uh, and so that certainly has a knock-on effect, but I guess what you're talking about, Bill, is this whole concept, the Austrian concept of malinvestment. So you have a non-market demand, essentially, that occurs because of a command economy, governments that decide they want to have policies rather than allowing spontaneous decisions being made by independent market players, millions and millions of them. And then you have these cities and you have them built and you borrowed money to build them, but nobody's living in them and there's no, and factories that are built that are producing nothing or cannot produce uh, output that will bring in revenues to, to to service the debt. Isn't that the problem we're seeing globally, essentially, is that we don't have cash flow to service debt from a macro, on a macro perspective? 
Yeah, we've allowed so much uh, malinvestment, and then what happens is companies, governments, etc., um, they deploy more and more of their resources to satisfy these, these monthly uh, debt obligations, and that's like a huge wet blanket on the fire. The real economy is only so big, and probably the most challenging thing for us and a lot of people in the Austrian camp was trying to decipher real demand from you know, government-induced, top-down, uh, essentially, you know, controlled demand. Mm-hmm. And because China does have a real economy, let's face it. I sure. Mean, there's, there's a lot going on in China on the, on, the, on, the, uh, on the ground. But then you have this huge overlay, which is government-induced, and it, it sends, you know, very, very um, false signals through the system. So I think the, the answer, you know, the Austrians would say, look, let's just let debt default. I mean, let, letting debt default and maybe converting debt to equity if it's a viable business uh, is the answer. But trying to you know, paper over all these issues or get into the political process of, you know, this group or sector will get saved, but everyone else will fail, that then sets in motion a whole other layer of unintended consequences. So, yeah, we're going into the period of time where uh, debt defaults and debt is converted to equity. It's very deflationary. And, of course, trying to fight that, you've got uh, countries around the world, and it's this race to debase. Um, but the problem is when you get China into a hard landing, then they start exporting deflation to the West. And if you don't, because the world is, is uh, interconnected now and there's labor arbitrage going on everywhere, and so what happens is where you're in a U.S. company, why would you hire U.S. people when you could now get access to you know, labor, facilities, et cetera, overseas at half the price. And so that puts uh, pressure on local wages, and you set that up against a backdrop where there's still a lot of present debt that should have been purged back in 08, 09, 10, 11, that was essentially kept in the system or, or restructured. Look at, look at the 4 million-plus mortgages through HARP that have mm-hmm. been restructured. That debt should have all been restructured and and probably by now we'd be coming out of it if the government were to just kind of walk away back then yeah well if we've of course if looking back if we had uh, you know not allowed ourselves to start uh, meddling the the government to meddle and, to, and not allow markets to adjust you could have a very continuous slow adjustment to uh, market adjustments to these excesses but once you disallow it over over decades of time then i think uh, the the obviously the ultimate pain, and it seems to me that they're not going to allow. I mean, the Krugmans of this world are not buying your your explanation at all, are they? Uh, they, no, the they, they don't believe of the that. World they're going to continuously go back to the um, the whiteboard and try and concoct yet another government or series of government induced schemes, and you know fill in the blank. God only knows what they're going to come back with next, and of course it won't work. Uh, you know, look, it could, it, could, it could create some kind of a bounce in asset classes or maybe a short-term bounce in nominal GDP statistics, but ultimately uh, they're, they're just utter failures, and it just makes the situation even worse. So I think the reality is, is that um, having governments controlling so many silos of an economy, you know, whether it's health care or the monetary system, and we go on down the list, you're essentially uh, crowding out the real economy. And let's face it, I mean, what have governments done around the world uh, in terms of entering the business world and and done correctly? I mean, they have a a terrible track record. Yeah. Well, uh, let's just talk a little bit in the remaining five, six, seven minutes we have left here. 
about um, which direction this thing heads. You indicated that, and clearly right now, uh, there is uh, you know air being left out of the bubble, right? We're seeing mm-hmm. equity markets. We've seen, of course, ahead of that time, we've seen uh, commodity prices collapsing. I, I've shared with you my inflation deflation watch, and we're seeing a plunge, really, a very clear plunge below first the three-year and now the five-year moving average of this index, which is really uh, it's a non-weighted, non-back-tested uh, group of, of items that I pulled together to uh, sort of help me understand whether the system as a whole was expanding or contracting, and clearly it's it's contracting, but one of the things from the peak of the IDW in 2011, about the same time gold peaked, my IDW peaked, and along with other commodities, and and since that time, you know, Bill, we, we've seen a very dramatic uh, difference in the components of my IDW. For example, uh, the items that have fared worst uh, we're looking at copper down 48 percent, com- uh, commodities as a whole, Rogers Fund down 49 percent, oil, WTI uh, down 65 percent, and silver down 70 percent. On the other hand, the home building stocks, which are benefiting from artificially low interest rates, of course, uh, the autos, which are benefiting from you know free loans, essentially, uh, S&P 500, of course, all the stocks, equity markets uh, uh, in the U.S. especially, uh, not uh, India and China so much, where things are actually produced, but in the, the hot air markets of um, uh, of the United States uh, primarily, we've seen a bull market until now. Now that's rolling over too, and so the whole system is imploding. It seems to me that what we have uh, is almost a, a waterfall, deflationary event that's occurring here. Uh, and how far can this thing go? I mean, we had... Robert McHugh talking about 1,000 on the Dow. That sounds extreme by any measure, but it's in line with what Robert Prechter was saying years ago. Actually, Prechter's talking about 600 on the Dow. Not that Prechter is given too much credit these days because he's been wrong as rain about a lot of things. But the point is um, that what I see is how far can this thing go, Bill? And what should we do right now to uh, protect ourselves? If you can't buy ETFs, what's what's the little guy supposed to do? Well, look, it's... First of all, if we are in this deflationary wave, then then dollars should continue to act well, and they have acted well. Um, yeah. And 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 then so I think that would be number one. Number two is that you know those are Bob McHugh and and Bob Prechter. Those are some pretty um, pretty extreme levels. Here's here's the real question. This is the question for everyone listening and and everyone kind of around the world looking at this from ten thousand feet up. We really don't know. We're going to be completely honest with ourselves. We really don't mm-hmm. know, as this is unwinding, uh, what the government will be able to uh, to do to stop it. And um, you know, could they create a program of infrastructure bonds and uh, and essentially go in and force retirement accounts to put certain portions of their retirement funds into these quote unquote rebuild America or fill in the blank bonds, and then put people back to work? And rebuild the infrastructure, all underwritten by some quasi-nationalized uh, retirement fund, right? From from going after pension funds and private private KIOs and IRAs, et cetera. And and if the market were to drop fifty percent or sixty or seventy percent, um, there's no telling what the government could try and do in that in that regard. So that would be one potential intervention from the government. The other. Other thing to keep in mind is that corporate profits, which peaked in 07, went down, you know, over 80 percent, 90 percent, and then they reflated them back out through getting rid of mark-to-market accounting, 
and uh, giving free credit for the most part for, for automobiles, homes, student loans, etc. Um, that created the, the, the temporary reflation, and of course that debt can't get serviced in, in a large number of cases, and that's all defaulting. So, so the profits are going back down. We really don't know. I mean, we can speculate, but we really don't know how low corporate profit. They could go down 50, 60, 70 percent. Yeah. But the, you'll have a better understanding once we get into the discussion of what debt is allowed to default and get restructured and what debt is being prevented from restructuring. Look at housing. So by keeping people in all these mortgages, still letting people default, repricing real estate lower, allowing the people to repair their balance sheet the last six years, then go buy a home at a reasonable right. of their wages. They kept people in the home. Right. People are still spending a lot of money on their mortgage. So it's, All right, um, Bill. Unfortunately, I've got to, I've got to, we've got to cut it off now because I'm out okay. of time. I, we could go on and on and on. Thank you so much. I suppose cash and gold are a good place to, to start with and make well, sure you don't have any could debts. go lower, but um, I think gold is money. And, and as the governments react in a very... Um, paranoid way in the future, then gold should should All right. catch more of a bid. All right. Very good. Well, we do have to go. Well, thanks very much, Bill, for being with us. Next week, folks, William Engdahl would be with me, and he had some theories on the assassination of Kennedy and how that tied in with Executive Order 11110, and it ties in with gold, silver, and the Constitution, and who is supposed to create money. Very interesting thesis from this very learned man, William Angdahl, he'll be with me next week. Thanks to each of you for listening. Until next week, goodbye and God's blessings to you. Thank you again for listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with Jay Taylor. Please join us again next Tuesday at noon Pacific Time, 3 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Channel. Novo Resources Corporation, trading symbols NSRPF on the OTCQX and NVO on the Canadian Securities Exchange, is an advanced junior mining exploration company whose highly prospective assets are located in the Hammersley Basin of Western Australia. Novo's flagship asset, its Beaton's Creek Project, has an NI43101 compliant resource of 420,000 ounces at a grade of 1.5 grams per ton. With $10 million in cash and strong shareholder support from Newmont Mining, Novo looks to complete a feasibility study in the first quarter of 2015. Avino Silver and Gold Mines is a diversified, low-cost producer with operations in Mexico and Canada. Avino is growth-oriented and recently completed a major expansion at its Mexican operation and is on pace to double output in 2015. Avino recently partnered with Samsung CNT and is now an official metal supplier to one of the world's largest manufacturers of consumer electronics and builder of some of the most prolific engineering projects worldwide. Avino's shares are listed on the NYSE market and the TSX Venture Exchange under the symbol ASM. If you want a silver lining in your portfolio, think of Eno.